Hi, you're listening to Healing Codependency. I'm your host, Erica Wright. <laughs> okay. Healing Codependency is a six-pot, deeply personal podcast series that will offer you an intimate look at how and why I am the woman I am today. I'm a self-appointed codependency counselor and passionate about up-leveling my own life. The point of this podcast series is to show you that if I can change, anyone can. I share six core turning points in my life and how I created a relatable daily non-codependency practice. Today on the episode, what you're about to hear is the reason why I'm doing this work. It's why this podcast exists. I'll tell the pivotal story of my relationship with my brother and how letting go of him forever liberated both of us. Episode five, Relationship Upgrade. Having my second daughter at 48 years old, the first week of March of 2020. It's also necessary to add that we were moving on March 14th. My daughter was an enormous baby, which is great. I, and I had a really delightful cesarean birth. And I was in the hospital with her, you know, she was like nine pounds and I was in the hospital with her. And thank God it was that week because like, you know, my best girlfriend's there who was like pretty much my doula for both births. Like my mom's, you know, it was like everyone can come and go and it's great. And my mom was there helping. Thank God. There's so much of that week that I don't remember because it's just, you're so whacked out on hormones. And I had a two and a half year old and there was so much going on. And we landed in a new house. And I think lockdown was March 15th. It's all shut down. No one can go outside. Oh my God, am I stuck in this house with these people? My mom was still there and she might not be able to leave. And she's like trying to get out and she's trying to help me. And she's got to like get back. Were they going to shut all the airlines down? For who knows what's happening? She got home and we adjusted to everything. Having remote postnatal care is super weird trying to show my cesarean incision on screen. Thank God it was my second baby because I had like the slightest clue of what to do as far as like nursing and all that stuff. So then in May, my brother and my sister-in-law and my nephew were like moving down from Seattle back to the Bay Area. And my brother asked if he could uh, live with us for a little while because they were struggling. This is March of 2020. I have my daughter and it's locked down and we move and we're like stuck in the house and, you know, no one's ever going outside anymore and the, the world has ended. And then, you know, my brother, can I live with you guys for a while while we work stuff out? Jesus, yes, please. Thank you. We need help. And my husband was moving his business from like a practice where people would come see him to remote. It was like so much adjustment and so crazy and Having no help when you have a baby is a crime against humanity anyway. 
the fact that people wanted to help and nobody could and we didn't know what was going on and it's super vulnerable anyhow. My brother is moving in with us and I was very clear. He had been struggling with alcohol and I was very clear. It's like, you can live here and it would be a welcome help to us, but like you cannot drink like under any circumstances. That's the hard rule. And he moved in and it was great. The first couple of months, it was great because he actually wasn't drinking and it was really helpful. And I had a newborn. It was also like really hard because I'm good friends with his wife and they were having problems. And I was being so codependent and spun out and taking sides and align with my brother and that he couldn't understand what was happening. And, and he was a chef. The meals that we would have, I mean, homemade bagels in the middle of the night and pizza and homemade pasta. Oh, it's three o'clock in the afternoon. Who wants creme brulee? French onion soup. All of that's happening too, which in the midst of all of the discomfort of COVID and the uncertainty, my brother, the chef moves in and it's homemade pizza four different ways, five nights a week. The other really great thing about having my brother live with us there was so much that we connected about about our childhood because of the amount of hours we were spending together there was a lot of material about being young in our family that like we really got to cover because of the hours that we were spending together and I had just had a baby, so there was a lot of fresh stuff. When you have a baby, that's very real, like that opening of memory, opening of vulnerability. There was a point where he was uh, he was home, and I was sitting on the living room floor, and I had this very visceral recollection my blood dad laying on the couch. It was a body memory, listening to music, smoking butts, and me being in my playpen with a dirty diaper, calling him and reaching for him and him not responding. The thing that was great about it was like, I just was on the floor playing with a baby and I started crying and it's such a, a rare thing for there to be like a blood relative in front of me to talk about that in real time. And one of the great things about my brother is he's very empathetic, feeling sensitive person. There was something so helpful and validating about him being like, wow, I can't believe that happened to you. And then there was another point while he was living with us that August that I had a really good friend who died in the middle of the night suddenly. My husband wasn't home and I got the news and like I walked out and of course my brother's in the kitchen. I got to tell him and I got to have that moment with him, you know, and he was so great and loving and I got to cry in his arms. Because I moved to California in 1995, there's just been such an active absence of my blood family in my life. 
him living the good parts of him being present in my house and like living with us a lot of it was really healing for me when you first have a baby there's like a window of however many days of being so open and so soft and so vulnerable and so susceptible and available for love and feelings and connection in that soft place i felt like i had a lot deeper access to memory and to connection and so it was really great that my brother was there for a lot of that and then at the same time he started drinking on the sly you know and it's like this is so great why are you ruining it <laughs> you know with this the first couple times he was obviously i was like are you all, you know are you all right and he's like yeah what are you talking about you seem are you fucked up? Like you see, and he'd be like, no, I just, you, you know, and he would like do something and tell some lie. I always know. You just know. You just, you know, it's like, that's it. You just know. And I would know and be like, oh, I'm. it must be me. Which is another really huge codependent practice. Here's you're presented with the truth and you're like, no, 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 no. My truth can't be right. It would be far too inconvenient and uncomfortable for my truth to be right. And, you know, don't forget too, it's like I had spent a large part of my life drinking with my family. You know, it's like, I know what drinking looks like, sounds like, smells like, feels like. The disease of alcoholism, it's not personal. It's not even about me years and years, I mean, a decade before I had gotten news, um, you know, when he was still living on the East Coast and I was living in California, one of my family members, maybe it was like my youngest brother was like, he's really struggling with drugs. He's having a hard time. And like, we've done an intervention and all this stuff. I was in a prayer ceremony and what I was praying about what I was talking about was like my brother is an addict and it's killing me like I think I literally said those words because I was so upset you know it was like I was so upset <laughs> at the prospect that that was happening my friend and teacher George was like he looked at me and he goes what it's not killing he's not killing you he's killing himself and I was just like, what? <laughs> like literally like, oh, I've I'd never thought of it or experienced it that way at all. Never once. It was such, it seems so basic, but it was such a revelatory moment for me. It's like, that is how ingrained I was in his life. This this is like all my own doing, all my own assignment. I am his keeper. I am the person that's here to look out for him. I am the one that will help him. I am the one that is, you know, it's like I made myself his second mommy or whatever, like beyond that, you know? I had invented this role for myself. 
it, if I were to draw an origin point, finding my brother at the bottom of the pool drowning when he was two. When I jumped in and pulled him out and he wasn't dead and he didn't drown and all of that was great. Definitely me assigning myself to save my brother's life began in the summer of 81 or 82. I can't remember now if he was one or two. I'm eight years older than him. Like I'm six years older than my sister, eight years older than my brother John, and then 10 years older than my brother Patrick. It's weird to be that much older than your siblings because of them being babies. I felt like an adult even though I wasn't. The significant age difference is real. And it was in the early evening time and um, we were going someplace. I remember we were trying to get in the car and I think we were going someplace relatively important. And my dad had just put in one of those big aluminum above ground pools, East Coast classic. If you had too much granite in your yard, you got the above ground aluminum pool. And he had just put it up every day of putting it up. He'd be like, no one come in here. Stay away. Stay away. Which is the most insane thing to say to kids who it's the scalding summertime in Boston. <laughs> stay away from the pool. And there was this crappy aluminum ladder. So the pool's full. Don't go up the ladder. We're getting ready to go. And everyone's like, where's John? I don't know. Obviously he could walk. So maybe it was summer 82. And uh, no one knows where John is. And I'm like, I'll just look over the pool, the side of the pool. And then like, I climb up the ladder, I look down and John's fully dressed at the bottom of the pool, eyes wide, looking up with his mouth open. I screamed and jumped in the pool and picked him up really quickly. He must've just sunk. And he started crying, of course. And like, I hand him to my mom. And I think there was a moment of, oh, I gotta make sure this kid doesn't die. I caught on. This is what we're doing. This is what I'm doing. And then a couple years after that, he had a really severe allergies when he was a little kid in and out of the hospital a lot because of his allergies. And I remember thinking, see, he's going to die. He's in and out of the hospital. This is bad. And eventually he got better and they figured out what the deal was. And for me, it was always like, ah, keep one eye out for him. You know, he's sensitive. Go through growing up a bit, I move away. He's a teenager. When they were teenagers, I was gone. I moved to California. And always still though, when I would check in, how's John doing and how's he doing? You know, and he's growing up and he's doing his thing. And at some point I'm hearing from home, uh, you know, things are getting a little out of control with, with John and it seems like he has a problem and we did an intervention and this isn't good and it's different. It's not like everybody else when they're partying and all this stuff, you know, and I'm just like checking in with John, whatever, everything's fine. I don't know what these people are talking about, which is exactly like the correct response that an addict, you know, that someone struggling with addiction would give you. And then it just kind of went away for a minute. And then he had gotten in some kind of trouble with the law. And that's when I was like, oh, no, cat's out of the bag. And that's when I was in that ceremony. And I, my brother's an addict and it's killing me. And George was like, no, it's not. It's killing him. That was like the beginning of the idea that my brother's life, in fact, 
has nothing to do with me. There was some sense also, if I'm being totally honest, there is there was a sense that I had failed. If I had been looking after him right, this wouldn't be happening. <laughs> what a fantasy. What an insane fantasy, right? And I love the guy madly. And I totally see everyone's innocent. That's what I thought love was. Time goes by. Okay, well, I'm beginning to learn that, you know, my brother's addiction issues have nothing to do with me. And yet I'm very committed to potentially helping him out. I was bringing my husband my, to meet my family for the first time in Boston. And we get there and it's obvious that my brother is out of his mind, whacked out on drugs and looking at my family, like you guys, and everyone's just like, we've had it. We don't know what to do with this person. And thank God my husband was there because my denial was accessible. I could be like, I don't know, you know, and he'd be like, baby, I mean, I just don't think there's any way around this, you know, <laughs> it's pretty obvious. He's being very unsubtle. <laughs> and so we were at my nephew's birthday party and I just was like, all right, if John shows up, I'm just going to ask him. I'm just going to be like, this is it. And he showed up and I was like, come smoke about with me outside. And we went outside and I was like, are you just like out of your mind? And he was like, yes, if I don't get out of here, I'm probably going to die. Well, I'm going to get you a plane ticket and I'm just going to fly you out to California and I'm going to, I'm going to get you into rehab. We'll just do that. Just get on the plane and we'll just figure everything else out. So when I got back to California, I you know, I did that. I bought him a plane ticket and I was like, just get on the plane and we'll figure it all out. And uh, he came out and he got off drugs. I felt relieved. I did my job and still not really understanding the depth and breadth of my codependency with him. He did the deal and I married Jeff and he was in my wedding with the rest of my blood family oh, what a miracle it is, you know, like he lived and, you know, he ended up meeting one of my really good friends at my wedding. They went on a date and they got married. Oh my God. Wow. This is amazing. This life is coming together and it was so great. And you know, I'm so good because I saved my brother's life, which is just so not at all what was happening <laughs> in any way. And then, you know, he was drinking and it really wasn't until I got sober, really, that I could see anything about alcohol clearly at all. You know, I remember thinking to myself, well, as long as he's not a drug addict, I guess if he drinks for the rest of his life, it's all right. At least he's alive. And that was through the lens of my own alcoholism too. And then when I got sober, so much of me changed. There is a clarity and a change in my brain by not having that regular liquid of complete confusion in my body. The first thing that I noticed when I had stopped using alcohol, one of the very first things I noticed is the whole lens of my life changed because 
there was a level of reality that I was willing to acknowledge and accept that never was there before, ever. It's worth mentioning, it was extraordinarily uncomfortable because there was nowhere, the pockets and the places for denial and hiding and they began to diminish. You know, when you pick up a rock and the bug underneath, it's like, ah! tries to run to find the, it felt like that for a, a, a while because a lot of the things that I was used to feeling and then getting out of that feeling whatever feeling I wanted to change or like the things I didn't want to feel. And I just wanted to feel a good buzz, which was the illusion of relaxing, poisoning my body and the illusion that I was relaxing when the exact opposite is happening. And then also the lens on my life and my behavior and what I was doing with my time and myself and, you know, all of that changes. And like, it's, it's worth mentioning here too. One of the things that I felt really strongly about is I didn't want to be the uncool sober person. I didn't want to be the person that was sober walking around casting judgment on all the people that were drinking. I wanted to be the person that was, I'm in my sobriety. I don't know what y'all are doing. I don't care. It's not my business. Forget it. It wasn't my job to walk around and acknowledge who had an alcohol problem and who didn't. I'm just going to pay attention to myself. Unless someone's alcoholism lands in my lap. In my house. With my kids. And my husband. And the terms and conditions were... Under no circumstances can you drink in this household. My husband's sober, I'm sober. You know, and from him, it was like, not a problem. In my brother's family life, his alcoholism was one of the reasons why he was coming to live with me. And they were going to work things out, right? He was just going to take some space. And so when he moved in with me and he was like, yeah, I'm sober. It's not a problem at all. And I'm like, well, you're not going to meetings or anything? And he's like, no, 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 I got it. And I'm like, okay, okay, cool. Great. And then when he starts drinking and I'm like, oh my God, this guy is drinking. Like it took a minute trying to figure out, okay, well, what's supportive and what's going on? The other codependent pattern that I noticed about myself is when something was happening, the first thing I do is see what I was doing wrong. And so finally, it's really becoming obvious. My husband is losing his patience and it's coming up on the holidays and he's getting furious. And he's like, I'm really having a hard time behaving around this guy because he's lying and I don't like it and I don't feel safe and I don't feel good about what's going on. And I would be like, let me talk to him one more time. And it was just getting like worse and worse and the tension was piling up. You know, just let me, just let me see what I can do. And then finally he comes up to me one morning and he's like, he has a deal. He goes or I go, I'm not doing this with you anymore. I can't live like this. I don't feel safe. You are not seeing things clearly. Like you cannot see what is happening. I am telling you, you do it. It's your job. I'm not doing it. Oh, fuck, you're right. I really wish it wasn't my job. It's the thing I've been avoiding my whole life. 10 days before Christmas, it was like the timing could not be. And I kept saying like, but the timing can't be worse. And he was like, Nobody gets sober because it's convenient. 
you have to make it uncomfortable or it's not going to work. And I was like, I can't believe I'm doing the thing I hate the most. I mean, there was a part of me that really felt like I'm abandoning him, you know, like, which I was, you know, it's like, I am giving up my post. I am giving up my post here. It was all the things I feared. I'm going to be, I'm going to let you down. I'm going to disappoint you. I'm going to not show up for you. Yep. This is it. You need to get out of here. You need to move out today. I don't know where you're going to go. It's not my business. You can't be here anymore. And I hate it. This is the hottest thing I've ever had to do (laughs) is let you go. The idea of doing the thing that's really hard. I'm going to have all my weird thoughts about what's going to happen. None of which are true, right? But it's like, it's part of the buildup of like, okay, I got to, I got to tell my brother to get out of my house 10 days before Christmas. What am I thinking? My family is going to think I'm the worst person ever. They don't even know what's going on, you know, but they're going to think I'm terrible. My brother's going to hate me. He's never going to want to talk to me again. I love him so much. Like he's going to hate me forever and I'm never going to see him. All the stuff that was actually really good about him living in the house, that will all be gone. And he won't love me anymore. And he won't want me in his life and he'll think that I ruined everything. And I really thought that stuff, you know, and thank God for my husband was like, baby, someday when he's sober, he's going to know that it was loving. Trust me. I mean, I really had to make a choice. It was like, okay, well, if truly our relationship is built on me being in service to him and me taking that away means he doesn't love me, then it wasn't much of a relationship. Do I trust that my brother loves me? I do. So I have to, I have to let him go and I have to be willing to not be liked, which I always wanted to be the cool sister, you know, the cool older sister. I would see it in other families, you know, being the oldest, never wanted to piss anybody off. His response initially was, I'm super sorry. I get it. That was like the first layer. And then the next layer was he was pissed. He was really pissed. I hated the feeling of people being mad at me. We tried to have Christmas together. And my brother, who is usually the most entertaining, goofiest, funniest, that shit was shut down. No laughing, no smiling. After that I just think I got to put this relationship down for a while, you know, and he started to do his thing with his life and got sober. And I didn't know what he was doing because I was like, I got to unplug from this whole situation. I got to leave this guy alone. Like I got to work on getting my life back and my marriage and raising my kids. And when I say I let him go, I let him go. And I was like, if he wants to talk to me, he can let me know. And I'm just going to leave it. And in December till about June, I grieved intensely over and over again, like wanting so badly just to call him and be like, are you all right? I'm sorry. Are you done being mad at me? No, leave it alone. Leave it alone. 
And it sucked. It sucked. <laughs> so our kids are really close and my girls love their uncle. And they were like, yeah, we want to see him. What's it? Okay, can we just come over and use your pool? We don't need to talk about anything, you know? And he was like, yeah, of course. Let's talk about hot dogs and sandwiches and the kids and get on with it. So then we kind of did the summer like that. We're in the same place and now we're at birthday parties and we're not really saying the thing. And it was driving me ape shit. So that October we went to the pumpkin patch and I was just like, you know what, dude, I can't do this with you anymore. I like can't do the small talk. Like you came in, you did all the shit to my life. You haven't said anything about it in the parking lot of the pumpkin patch. And he was like, you know, well, I'm pissed at you and blah, 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 blah. I don't know how all this is going to end up, but we'll figure it out. And then in November, our dad died the day after Thanksgiving, which is also the day that he left my mom the day after Thanksgiving. It's a magical day in my family. <laughs> Holds a, a lot. It's a powerful day for my dad. You know, I don't know what to say about it. Black Friday. That's my dad's day. You know, he really likes to drive it home on those. I'm really going to make a statement here. Black Friday is my day. So my brother, Patrick, who's my youngest brother, called me on the phone to tell me that my dad died. He lives on the East Coast and uh, there was a lot going on. He found out my dad died has a whole bunch of things to contend with. He's at work. And I was like, okay, well, I'll call John. And I called John and uh, I was like, dad died. You know, I'm crying, he's crying. And I was just like, can I just come over? Like, I, I, I don't know what I'm gonna do. Like, I just need to come over. And I went over to his house, walk in the door and I'm crying and he's crying and his wife, you know, my sister-in-law's crying. And we sat down on the couch. And I was just like, can we just move forward? <laughs> I don't know what to do about anything. I want our relationship back. And it was really great. We had the talk. This particular situation, it's like one of the things that I got to experience was this. What I thought I had been waiting for was my brother to apologize and be accountable and tell me all the things that he did wrong and that I would be able to let it go then and we would move forward then. And the reality is I actually let it go and moved on way before he needed to be or was accountable for anything. So often in the past, I would not let myself move forward or let something go or feel peaceful unless fill in the blank, fill in the blank, conditions, conditions, conditions. I could have my peace anytime I wanted it. And I did not need to wait for him to do anything for me to get that. There's two things that I really hope people can take away with them from listening to the story, which is this one, almost always the super uncomfortable thing is exactly the thing that's going to get someone or something forward in their life like you've never imagined. And all of my thoughts and ideas about that discomfort were way weirder and way worse than it actually happening. It was painful. Like the reality of it was very painful. But my thoughts about it 
were way worse than what the actual experience was. Discomfort is not a problem. And the massive payoff of the truth and the letting go of the cycle and the taking care of yourself well outweighs the moderate temporary discomfort that you'll experience. And then the second extraordinarily valuable piece of life experience I got from this tremendous lifetime of healing with my brother, John, is I am in charge of my peace always. That is not anything that anyone else can give me. And it's not anything that anyone else can take away. So waiting for someone to be accountable for their behavior, for me to be able to let it go and feel peaceful, that is a prison I make myself. The other incredible gift that I got. I had so much fantasy about his potential and what he could be like. And if he only just fantasy, I was either in the past or the future with him rather than, oh, this is what you're doing right now. The potential of my brother was what I was in a relationship with. He was living his life and I was creating this whole role for myself in it because that's what I thought love was. I am on this podcast because of that man. The happiness and the relief that I have now that I'm attempting to offer the public at large. Some really great markers to look out for that will indicate that you're in a codependent relationship is if you are inclined to work at someone else's life harder than they do. If you think you know what is better for someone else than they do. If you think that you are only useful if you are offering somebody something. If you see somebody as small, sad, weak, fearful, or addicted. Patterns of disappointment expectation and resentment. Resentment comes from you doing a bunch of stuff that you don't want to do over and over again, which is essentially lying. Basically, when you think that you know anything about anybody and you know better than them, there it is. Looking at the world through a non-codependent lens or looking at your relationship through a non-codependent lens would look something like this. Every person is capable and in charge of themselves in their lives. Thank you for listening to Healing Codependency. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about my one-on-one and group counseling programs, please find me online at ericawright.org. That's E-R-I-K-A-W-R-I-G-H-T dot O-R-G and on Instagram at Erica Wright H-C-D. That's E-R-I-K-A-W-R-I-G-H-T-H-C-D. This production was co-created by award-winning media midwife Ari Golden. You can find a link to her work in the show notes.
Please join us next time as my journey of healing codependency continues. It's a lifelong practice. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you find it helpful. Healing Codependency is sponsored by my company, Superstar Dark Chocolate, a superfood bar with all organic raw ingredients. Find it and eat it at www.superstar.com. That's www.supahstah.com. And God's Eye Oils natural hand-blended beauty care and custom perfumes. To experience the full line of products, please visit www.godseyeoils.com. That's www.godseyeoils.com. You can find links to our sponsors and learn more about each episode in the show notes.